Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Carlos Hawthorne and I'm a staff writer at Resident Advisor. Our guest this week is Maceo Plex. Miami-born Eric Estornell is a man of many guises, Eric Entity, Mario Ito, Matrix, but it's as globetrotting DJ and hit machine Maceo Plex that he's made his name. What a lot of people don't know, though, is that Plex is a relatively recent development in Estornell's career, which dates back to the early 90s and spans electro, minimal and experimental. I sat down with Estornell during one of his many trips to Ibiza this summer to chart his winding trajectory from bedroom techno nerd to becoming one of dance music's biggest stars. You can find our full archive of exchanges on residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at RA-Exchange. An exchange with Plex up next. month into what I imagine is another hectic summer for you. You just come back from Sonar. How was it? It was, it was good. It was interesting. I um, It was probably the first Sonar that was pretty relaxed for me because I live in Barcelona. So it was just a matter of doing the family thing and then going at night to play and coming home. You know, it wasn't like past year of which, you know, the days kind of run, run all together and, you know, with all these after parties and then you just end up going to the next gig and the next gig. It was nice. It was like a vacation, you know, from gigs. How's it working out for you living in Barcelona? I love it. It's a beautiful city. It's got everything I need and some really good record stores too, really good restaurants, really great airport, really close to Ibiza, sunny all the time. Just got everything I want, you know. And you recently became a father as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. How is it balancing? Yeah, he, uh, Solar is his name. He was born uh, in, on, in January and... Um, I didn't expect um, what came. It was just kind of like, you know, the moment that your first baby is born, I'm a stepfather. Um, my wife has another uh, daughter, and she's pretty much my daughter. But, you know, when whenever one of your own is born, it's like things have to change. Even if they don't change right away, they, you know that something's going to have to change. You're probably going to have to sort your priorities a little bit and, you know, do do things the right way. You know what I mean? How's it been? Grow balance, up. How's it been balancing touring and? It's been easy. I mean, we take them pretty much to half the gigs, and um, we have a really good friend that's um, a nanny, Manny. He's, he's a guy. <laughs> he's a Manny, <laughs> and um, so you know we'll go somewhere, and when it's time to go play, he'll stay with the baby, and my wife and I will go play. She'll come, you know, and just uh, kind of like my tour manager, kind of. And then we go home, you know, we go back to the hotel. It's pretty easy. I mean, I, I not everybody's in my, you know, a lot of people have babies. They can't travel the world and do gigs and and do it so easily. Luckily, I'm in a position where I can actually bring the baby with us and bring my wife as well. Kind of bring the family, you know. It's coming at a good point in your career. Right. It's like the right time. Yeah. I want to take it back. You were born in Miami to Cuban parents. Right. You, did you have a very Latin upbringing? 
Yeah, for sure. Like, for instance, food-wise, I didn't discover, you know, half the foods I eat now until I was in my teens because we ate, I just ate like really greasy Cuban food up until my teenage years. So I hadn't even tried sushi or like really fresh stuff or healthy things. I was, and I wasn't even fat, but you know, it was, it was funny. It was like, that's how Latin my family was. Latin music all the time, Latin food. We went everywhere was really Latin, but they speak really good English. They have both of my parents had really good careers, but yeah, it was pretty Latin upbringing. Yeah. And your, you and your brother were part of a dance troupe. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, we used to call ourselves Two-Tone. And then we were in like, you know, because I, when I got into music, well, we were put in dance class at an early age. I, I got into it when I was, I guess, I don't know, six or seven years old. And my little sister as well, my brother. I got into it because the girl's really cute. And, um, and I was a little kid and I thought the, these girls that were like teenage girls, my brother's friends, maybe I was more like eight. You know, I thought they were really kind of like, wow, there's girls, you know? So I got into it and it was good. It was a really good learning experience. It's kind of how I, you know, discovered dance music. Yeah, we were, we toured and did like shows, you know, in this dance group, really cheesy, like late 80s dance group with with the uh, the baggy hammer pants and all that. <laughs> It was hilarious. It was good. It Your was brother went on to become quite successful. Yeah, and then he, he went on to become a professional dancer and actually danced for uh, everyone from J-Lo to Michael Jackson to Britney Spears, Insane. Um, I mean, everybody. So In the late 90s, yeah. And you moved to Dallas right at the start of the 90s. I mean, what were right. your earliest experiences of dance music there? Well, it was pretty easy. My brother was already into dance music, and he would... I was experimenting with... Uh, this sound recorder program it just it was literally called sound recorder in windows 3.1 i think it was and he would have me he would give me some music to like edit together for warming up at dance class because you know you would just put on whatever dance music you had and warm it up i mean you know i grew up listening to to miami bass and electro uh as well as like the latin bass stuff and all that so it was it was natural progression for me i i really liked it and I was doing this um, for dance class. And then I guess somehow I discovered uh, actual techno, just turning on this radio show called The Edge Club. I uh, came on Saturday nights, became obsessed with it. It was regular acts from Detroit, like Juan Atkins and other people like that that were coming down, Houghton, other people like that that were coming down and playing. And it was really quick. It just took like maybe a year or two. And it was, I went from really bad rave music to really good techno music. <laughs> and I was really young. I was like 14, 15 years old. So, so were yeah. you an active part? Did you become an active part of the scene? Probably not until the past few years. I wasn't that social. You know, I was, I was pretty introverted. And, uh, you know, I had friends that were really extroverted and they would get me to sneak out of the house and go to raves in the early 90s and listen to my favorite DJs and, and all that. And that's how I started DJing. But I was so into just staying at home and learning because I eventually got a couple of really bad record players, a really bad Radio Shack mixer. This was, I guess, 93. And, you know, I was 16 years old and um, discovering the music. And I just didn't, I didn't care about the drug scene or like getting with girls or anything like that. Basically, um, I wasn't a part of the rave scene at all. I... I went through the 90s, you know, hanging out with, and I eventually worked at record stores and stuff like that, just hanging out with really, really uh, nerdy 
techno kids and not really going out very much. It's kind of awkward. <laughs> so you came at dance music much more from the kind of producer, right. DJ angle, right. bedroom rather than as a clubber. Yeah, I never was. I never was really a rave or a clubber. I mean, I, I went to parties, but I think there was only maybe two or three parties in in the 90s, the early 90s that I went to to dance. The rest of the time was literally to see just my favorite DJs and, and see hear what they were playing, see how they were doing it, as well as live acts, and then going to the record store and asking for all the music that they were playing. And... um yeah, that was it. I, I never was a club or a dancer or a promoter or anything like that. So, Before you were Mesa Plex, you had a couple of notable aliases, Matrix and Mario Ito. Before we get into them, I want to just kind of establish how you make sense of the differences between them. And I don't anymore. <laughs> I don't anymore, basically. Like the album that I'm working on now is just everything rolled into one. But I used to try. But some people are really good at, at you know, being disciplined on like what, sound needs to have what name or whatever whatever name they're using and I was trying really bad to do that but I can't go into the studio and say I'm going to write a house record or I'm, I can't write a techno record and be like okay you know what I need to do this metric remix it's going to be techno you know or whatever or I can't you know I, I experiment around with electro and experimental I can't just like keep you know neatly designating it for any certain name that I'm using. So it's all blended together in the past like year or two. So, you know. You've been incredibly prolific as a producer across all those different aliases. I mean, are you someone who making music comes easily? Well, yeah, it comes easily. It's not always good, obviously, but I mean, it comes, you know, um, I mean, I, I, I don't know how to do anything else. I don't know how to I don't even I play sports well. I don't fish. I don't, I don't go camping. I don't. Uh, I don't know how to do literally anything. I, it's kind of. It's kind of depressing, <laughs> but I mean, I'm really. I don't even know how to fix anything around the house. The only thing I know how to do is just uh, play around with with uh, programs and um, and synths. You you're know. good at you're good at having the ideas in your brain and getting them into the machines. I eventually became good at that. Yeah. I mean, it was it was many years trying. So you were putting out quite a lot of records in the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. I mean, did you manage to kind of build a small career off Matrix and? Right, I did. Yeah, I um, I had a little career and it was uh, I was doing okay. I mean, I was broke all the time, but at least I was doing what I wanted to do. You know, I couldn't necessarily go have a nice place or have a car and all this stuff. I started to work at a normal job, but. It was good. It was like that from 99, 98, 99 to 2000, I guess, 10, 2009, 2010. And that was fine. And, it, you know, I guess there was a point where when I moved to Europe, then I realized I could probably make dance records better. You know, I was I was touring Europe a little bit as Metric or as Mighty Lito, but they were way too complicated for most of the uh, dance listeners. So... You know, the, the tracks were super glitchy or they were just, you know, all over the place. It didn't make any sense on the dance floor. Um, my live didn't make any sense. I was able to kind of strip it down and realize what works on the dance floor or not. And that's when I started the Maceo project. So. Was there space for what you were doing as Matrix and Marielito in Dallas? Yeah, yeah. In, in Dallas, we had our little electro night. Not Metric that much. I didn't play as Metric very often just because of very house town. 
like it's always been a very housey town but there was you know and i never really made house that much especially in the 90s and in 2000s it was just me hanging out with uh basically electro guys and ordering records i was i worked at a record store from the late 90s through about 2006 ordering all the vinyl that that uh, came in of techno and electro so i was you know we were doing that and I had my little crew, and we would just do our nights for about 15 people. We would literally get about 15, 20 people up until 2008. <laughs> it wasn't that long ago for my own, my, most of my career. And we would just play whatever records were coming in. And it was like a crew of us that some of them had a success, like Gerard Hansen as Convection ERP. He ended up releasing on Matrix and some other labels and like uh, Frantic Flowers and clone and you know these other labels he's clone affiliated labels and became this this uh somewhat star still charging relatively cheap but came kind of like a star i watched that happen i watched other people you know download records become this big thing they got distributed through rush hour but they were like a local dallas label releasing electron all that so and i was doing my little thing but yeah we never we never really did very much in Dallas. It was just like dudes getting together and having a coffee and making tracks. I read that by the time you moved to Valencia, you were finding the whole Dallas thing quite uninspiring. Right. Yeah, I was uh, kind of over it, you know, because we never got support. It's just a town where everybody's just, nobody supports each other. To this day, nobody supports each other. And, um, you know, there's little cliques that start and they eventually disband. They just kind of like, start and then they disappear and do parties for a little while but nobody ever just gets together and has like a sound whether it's naturally get together or, or you know try to actually organize so it's kind of like a black hole of creativity basically <laughs> almost it sounds terrible but it really is it's like a black hole of creative there's really creative people that come out of there and out of texas in general i believe matthew deer is even from texas from like san antonio or something like that there's just so many like people that come out of Texas. Just you have to leave for your creativity to like really blossom, or for you to do anything with your career. So that's eventually I finally figured out after 20 years of doing it. I was like, all right, I gotta get the fuck out of here. You know? What do you think it is about the place? Is it the attitude of, of the people? I guess because it's such a commercial place, such a conservative city, and such a commercial place. As in, like it's all about money. Money runs Dallas. People with money run Dallas. None of the laws are in favor of the of the artists of any kind of artist, visual artist, uh, painters, whatever, music artist. Everything had to close at two. Some there was like one or two places that closed at four. Raves were impossible by the mid '90s. So it's just so you just had this like pent up creativity that really had nowhere to go, and you had to like, you know, you had to get out, which actually could be a good thing, you know, like by being isolated. I I could only listen. The only influences I had were listening to records. It wasn't. I couldn't, we didn't have that many guests coming through, like amazing artists coming through and playing. So we had to like study records to learn how they were doing it. And there's a difference from like knowing and hanging out and doing drugs and being cool and like hanging out with all your favorite artists to like only having their records to listen to and, and learn from, you know? So it's kind of like the exact opposite of Berlin. Like in Berlin, people get together and they create together and they, move the f scene forward together in dallas you don't have that so you can only listen to the records and think of a, f a future or something and like create from that 
Do you know what I mean? It's like complete isolation. Totally. Yeah. The move to Valencia it always struck me as quite an unorthodox place right. for an artist to live. Yeah. It, well, I mean, it, it was like for me, since I came from a very unorthodox techno scene, like, there was nothing basically there. Going to Valencia was like the same thing, but just slightly better. And it was safer. I had I had a couple of friends. I had that uh, at a festival called Observatory back in uh, 2003 with Isolay and Matthew Johnson and people like that. And I fell in love with the city. We had such a good time, all of us, playing together and just hanging out together for that for that week that um, I met really great people and they were suggesting I move out there. So years later when I finally moved, those are the only people I knew um, in Europe, basically. So I landed in Valencia and eventually made it to Barcelona. And that's where you recorded Life Index. Valencia was where it recorded yeah. Life Index, yeah. So, I mean, how was the Mesoplex project first conceived? Pretty simple. I mean, it was just, I was making the, the metric stuff. I was starting to get more dancing. I sent a demo to Damien Lazarus. He had already signed somebody named Matrika from Mexico. Um, I believe from Mexico. And he, um, which, very similar spelling. <laughs> really annoying <laughs> it was like that i was like are you kidding me but that's what then he chose to use so you know he had already signed somebody named matrika and uh, he said can you can you call it something else uh, and it was basically one track it was my first funk track i, got, I thought i was making funky stuff and it was called gravy train he uh he liked it and he said can you make me more but can you use a different name and i was like sure so my wife had a cat named maceo because she was a huge james addiction fan and there's a song named Cat uh, Maceo in it. Maceo Parker played in that on that song. And the liberator of Cuba, his name was Antonio Maceo. So it was a name that, like, throughout my life came up a lot. It's like, all right, I'll use Maceo. Put it together with Plex because I had already used the name Plex on a couple records. And that was it. So. Off the back of those records and that album, you blew up pretty fast. I feel like it summed up where dance music was. And it kind of it the, timing, the focus yeah. switched on, from DJs onto producers, and you could you mm. could blow up really quickly. Yeah, I mean, what was it like being thrust so quickly into the limelight? It was horrible. No, I'm just kidding. It was it was, <laughs> it was amazing. I mean, but I would never say that it was anything negative about it. But not everything is so like perfect in this world. Obviously, you know, you you have sacrifices whenever you rise so quickly, and. um yeah, it was basically everybody wanted something out of being, you know, and you, you have this overwhelming pressure. You have this overwhelming amount of people that are, quote unquote, the tastemakers of the of the trend at the moment, asking you for this and that. And they could do this for you and could do that for you. And you, you know, every, every producer eventually has to like, you know, you if you don't fall into it, then you have it happen to you and you have to make a decision, like a really tough decision of either continuing to do that or and just to make everybody else happy or saying fuck off and doing your own thing. I'm not that strong. You know, there's other people that are like, you know, a lot stronger than me that they could literally make a hit record tomorrow and never make another record that sounds like that ever again. You know, and be like, all right, I made that one and that's it. I'll never make another one that sounds like that again. And kudos to them because that takes some serious nuts you know i wasn't that strong i was like oh well i can take this i can make more of this it's no problem and then it was a, there was a point where i felt like um sl like slightly like a artisan and not an artist you know like somebody comes in and orders something and you just make it to order 
and you're really good at that, you know, as an artisan or whatever. You're really good at that, making that, and you're respected at making that. But then you don't feel like an artist anymore because you're not really doing anything that new. So that's that's the pressure of coming up so fast. I mean, was it frustrating not being known for your metric stuff, like being this? Yeah, and then all of a sudden, everybody that never gave a shit about metric all of a sudden gave a shit about metric. <laughs> and they're requesting metrics. It was like, are you serious? Where have you been? Where have you been? For God's sake! But it was it was really nice. There's no complaints. I mean, it was it's just you know when people come on and say, okay, I remember this metro record, or even Villalobos started playing again because he had uh, originally was playing a lot of this track called Utilizame, and he started playing it again. So I had all these people asking me for Utilizame style stuff, which is something that came out in 2005. So I was like, you know what? I, I, yeah, but. I mean, you just want to turn off the voices, you know? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you literally want to turn off the voices and just, you know, make what you want to make. It's really tough. I imagine it's important to have good people around you in situations mm-hmm. like that. I have literally, like, no circle. I have a few friends that uh, I don't have a manager. I don't have – I mean, I have an assistant or assistant manager, kind of like in a managerial role, but not an actual manager. I have a very – you know, I just use my friends to our managers – I have a pretty good agent, but, you know, I don't have, like, a team of people that are, like, you know, you know, you should do this, you should remix that, you should do blah, 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 because uh, you realize that everybody has a different opinion of what you should do, and you're never going to be happy doing what else, what other people want, so I still have yet to hire, uh, to have any kind of team or anything like that, and I, I prefer having a really small circle, you know, of, of friends that tell me if something's shit or not, you know. For a while, you were playing live as Maceo Plex. Right. Pedals, drum machines, voice. I mm. mean, what brought about the transition towards the more traditional club setup that you've got now? Well, I mean, I had already been DJing for many, many years, and um, it was kind of a pain in the ass, basically, to do my live. I didn't even like my live, to be honest with you. People, Some people liked it. I, I didn't like it that much, and I felt like there was others that could do it better. And I was just like, you know what? I'll let others do it better. I could probably DJ better than I can... And I can live. I can produce in a studio. I'm very comfortable in any kind of studio and with any kind of program, with any kind of synth. I have so many and I have so much gear and it's like I, I'm good at that. Live is a different thing. There's people that are really good at live and there's people that are not that great at live that are pretending that they're good at live. You know what I mean? And they have their laptops and other controllers and, you know, playing tracks instead of actually performing and actually really imp- imp- improvising tracks. I just wasn't happy with my live. And I put it on hold and I just, I had, you know, many people wanting to book me. So I just started DJing again and it went, well, I mean, I'm just DJing. I feel like where you're at now, it's kind of this very big room, house and techno sound. It's just a really good marrying of the two, of Maceo Plex and Metric. Mm. Did you make a conscious decision to kind of bring Metric more into the fold? Right. Well, no, I wasn't conscious. It was, I mean, that's just, when I go into the studio, it's going to sound like a Metric record if you leave me alone. And um, if you have any kind of say in, making making me make like a, a deep house record then it's gonna come out you know i might make a deep house record but i mean usually when i go in and i'm you know messing around with the sound i tend to be inspired by the the more kind of crazier futuristic synth sounds not the basic pads or the basic stringy sounds or wah 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 that you always hear like something really thick and like expressive and and disgusting i like disgusting sounds so <laughs> basically so it's gonna come out as a metric record 
or a Marilito record is I've written so much uh, that hasn't come out yet. But if I actually like say, okay, I, I need to make something, you know, if I really, you know, have a mission to make a Mason Peck record, I could do it. And if you leave me alone, I'll, I'll make a Metro record. So even if it's called, even if it's a Metro record with the name Mesoplex put on it, you know. You said in an interview with RA in 2012 that, yeah, you wanted to bring your techno experimental side more into it and kind mm -hmm. of achieve mm -hmm. that balance. Do, yeah. you think, do you think you're there? No. Well, I mean, the next album that I'm working on, I think will incorporate more of that without scaring people too much. It's got straight up Manolito tracks on it that I mean a couple of them were actually designated to come out on um on SCSI or on AI or um on Modern Love back two thousand six and um I've revamped them, went back and like, you know, found the SysX files of the of the keyboards, found some of the beats and the samples that I used and recreating them to go with this album. So yeah, there's it's coming back, you know, but it's not gonna be it's not going to completely be an overload of it. You know, it's going to be some like, there's no house trucks on it or anything like that. It's going to be t totally different than the last album, but not so different that it's not Mesa Plex anymore. You know? And it, I think it's hopefully the stuff I'm working on now, people will start accepting, okay, this is, this is Mesa Plex. It's not going to be a copy of the last album, which was really successful and, and the Stevie Wonder covers and shit like that. It's a evolution of that. You came for it to be a statement. It, I'm hoping it could be a statement. Yeah, if it, if it was a statement, that'd be great. Around the time of your first Mesoplex album, you also started Elum, mm -hmm. your label. It was the idea to release your own music. Yeah, it was. It just started off with the first few releases, um, getting out the stuff that I had written that Crosstown couldn't release, and then I realized that we were selling okay. At the time, Crosstown, you know, while they did a lot for me. It was becoming a thing. You know, I don't dress like them. I don't act like them. I don't hang out with them. I can't say now, but I didn't identify with them very much back then. And they were slowly becoming like a family or like a, like a crew of, of artists that work together. And naturally I, you know, rejected it. I went a different way. And so I had to turn to releasing my own stuff. And you could see that actually happen in the LM catalog where things went from you know, stay high, baby. To which was written about my 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 girl. You know, it was like a deep house heat track. To slowly but surely getting like a lot darker. You could tell where it became a real label, in other words, in in like a way. And you put out some tracks as Metric on there. Did I do? Yeah, I did one. Yeah, I did a an EP as Metric. It's it's, it's just me. It's 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 both. It's me. You know what I mean? It's like okay, fine. I put Metric on it, but it's me. And eventually, and it was like a tech housey, dark tech housey uh, record. And then eventually, I never did another Metro record, but everything is called Mesoplex now. You know? Do you kind of wish you'd never started any of the aliases? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I'm glad I did, but I just wish people would, would stop needing it to be called something. You know, like, I'm a huge fan. For instance, there's a, there's a, a producer named Carl Finlow, one of the, the best producers. I've ever heard. He had many different names, Voice Stealer, you know, Silicon Scally, and all these ama you know, it's ama it's amazing music, but it was all him. And nobody ever, like in the late 90s and early 2000s, we didn't give a shit who it was. It was just like, it's Carl Finlow. And I was like, fuck it, he's using, he's using Voice Stealer. Who cares if it's, 
if it's the same as uh, Silicon Sally or not, but you know, it's a Carl Finland record. I gotta buy it. And that's what I wish, I mean, now it's so trendy to have a name that's hot. I wish people would just be like, oh, it's an Eric Eschenau record. I want to buy it because it's an Eric Eschenau record. I want to listen to it at least because it's an Eric Eschenau record because it might be good, it might be bad. But, you know, it's an Eric Eschenau record. It's not a Metro record. It's not a Mesa Pleasure. It's not a Marilita record. But now I guess the media needs to to put a artist name on it and a title and a style of music and a genre and all that. It's a different. It's just a different ball game. Is you wanting it all to be under one umbrella? Is that why you haven't put our record as metric since the Cocoon EP in twenty twelve? Right. Yeah. Because every time I write something that could be a metric record, like the last drum code, especially one like the B side, is kind of a disgusting track. Doesn't really have much melody. It's just in your face techno. Everybody was telling me, yeah, oh, you should call it a metric record. It'll make all your metric fans happy. I'm like, well, I, I, I'm, I'm hoping that they'll realize it's the same freaking person and. And just buy it just because it's a, it's a, uh, it's an Eric Eschenau record. You know what I mean? So, let's talk about the new album. It's named after your son, right? Solo. Yeah. Is it finished? Almost. Yeah. It's pretty much. I mean, I mean, I guess it's it's never gonna be finished until I actually hand it in because I keep finding stuff to either add to it or take away from it. I'm still writing music. I'll write something. I just wrote not too long ago a. One, 105 BPM electro track about two weeks ago and I was thinking about shopping it out and then I realized nah I'll just throw it on the album so it's probably going to be the most all over the place album it's not going to be that cohesive I don't think because it's just too many sounds I like too many too many types of things so I'm trying to find a way to make it a little bit more cohesive where you listen to it from the beginning and you feel like it had like a purpose by the end but I can say that every track just because of my influence lately in the past five or six months has been very directed towards my son, love for my son, love for my family, love for my career. So there's a lot of really emotional music on it, whether it's techno, whether it's house or electro. Is it strictly a dance floor record? No, not at all. It's probably two, two dance tracks on it and the rest is, uh, is really slow. Is it going to come out on Ellen? Yeah, because I I could um, I had a lot of really, really great offers from major labels and stuff, but I don't plan on being a major contender in the in the major league. <laughs> I mean, like there's all these uh, artists that they sign the majors, but they haven't. Maybe they have no idea that yeah, there's money, but do you want to play the main stage with uh, with those guys? Do you do you want to do that? Do you really want to do that? I mean. If you don't, then there's no reason to sign with a major label. I'm doing great in the quote-unquote underground. I'm in Ibiza, staying at a really nice hotel, and I'm playing a huge club. So if that's not underground, I understand. I mean, there's people that I have a different definition of underground as well. Sometimes I feel like playing in a place for 50 people is underground. But I do believe that it's somewhat underground what I'm doing. So I'd rather just stay with that and my label's underground. So just like we'll just keep doing that. I'm, there's no reason to be on a major label. Do you have offers to kind of take it more commercial? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but um, I don't even think they would even like the music, you know, if I sent it to them. Because I think they're expecting me to write another Stay High Baby or like Under the Sheets or some one of these records. So, you know, even if I did send them the album, they'd probably hate it. But they want to they want to make something that I'm not out of me. You know what I mean? And... You know, you see all these tweets where people are like, oh, I can't wait to see Skrillex and Mesoplex. I have nothing. I mean, I like Skrillex. He's a nice guy. He's a really nice kid. But 
we have nothing in common. So, but I think there's somebody out there, there's some kind of entity, some commercial entity out there, maybe corporate or whatever, that are trying to put it all, they're trying to make it all commercial, you know, make money off of it in some way. So let's just put it on my label. Over the years, you've come out and spoken your mind on a certain issues, mm-hmm. and the ghost producing thing, and, and, and Conjure Superstar kind of message there. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's important for someone in your position to voice their opinion on certain issues? Yeah, yeah, for sure. If there's something that something good that could come out of it, but not just for the hell of it, you know, like there's some people that tend to attack others for press. Just to get just a few extra people to come to their Facebook page. I see it all the time because it gets people talking. And it's because, I don't know, maybe they're not releasing any music at the moment or maybe they're not releasing any mixes of, of worth at the moment. So they're like, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tuck some shit on my site. And you see it all the time with just a you know, large array of, of artists that look for bad press or good press to get press. I've made the mistake of, everybody does, of... of eventually make the mistake of thinking that nobody really reads your Facebook page and you can just kind of say whatever or your social medias and you just say it and then you realize how much of an actual impact your opinion has on others, whether positive or, or negative. And I realized really early on, what was it? The, one of the one of the first ones was the Nina Kravitz thing. Another one was the, you know, I, I was really fed up with like really fake DJs I mean, fake artists. Sure, they might be DJing using sync button or whatever, but are they really making their own music and something that originally was in the commercial scene? I mean, even Michael Jackson Thriller had five producers on every track. You know, people think Michael Jackson released, made every single track. You know, he had five producers helping him on every single track. This is a normal thing in commercial music. You work with lots of different people, uh, an amazing drum program, an amazing r- arranger, or, or people to help you with your lyrics, whatever. But it was never like that in techno music. It was never like that. I mean, it was supposed to be, we're supposed to be doing the opposite of that. And um, I guess maybe I have like an, a 90s opinion on it, but or whatever you want to call it, 80s, 90s opinion on it. But I just, I feel like we were supposed to be doing it ourselves. And lately in 2015, there's so many artists that are not, they don't know how to, to write a kick drum, you know, they don't even know how to write a 4-4 beat and they're playing all over the world, you know, buying their music or getting other people to write their music for them. So I had to say something, you know, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, we, you know, we all, we're all frustrated about something. Thing is, I learned early on that, uh, that unless you really are ready to back up what you say, just shut up. Do you feel like since dance music has really started to grow in the last five or ten years and the money's become bigger and it's grown into this huge industry. Do you feel like it has the scene has become bitchier? More politics involved? Oh yeah, for sure. More politics. A lot of the the stuff that works, like I said, in commercial music was slowly seeping into underground music. Sex sells. Everybody's known that for years. Except in techno music. And all of a sudden in techno music sex sells. Where the fuck did that happen? When did, when did that happen? Like when was that but it's maybe the Ibiza influence, it's a club thing. It's others would say, oh, it's natural, blah, 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 blah. But I may not make the most purest of music, but I make, I, I have the most purest of, of ideas. And I feel like, you know, we're letting the commercial industry seep its negativity or its, its control 
on uh, to our scene when it was a very fine line before you know it was there was a, a fine line before and now it's all kind of mixed together there's people that actually blow up in the underground scene doing everything exactly the way somebody like gaga lady gaga did but just doing it in the underground scene and that's how they get they get big you know? do these things like really get you personally yeah i mean we come, i come from a small i guess small town but miami but dallas you know we just is so opposite of our thinking but i'm not i'm not that young anymore you know i'm almost 40 and there's people that are younger that that have they got into music got into dance music only knowing that you know so you know i have to adapt i'm adapting all the time i'm accepting of it i'm not going to be best friends with these artists or whatever but i'm accepting of of that the game has changed and now it's gone from great DJs to now you have to be a producer to be to blow up and now you have to have something else other than producing to blow up now you have to i don't know be hot or like just look good and on youtube and shit <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's crazy there's people that are literally like blowing up off looking good on youtube it's it's, it's a totally different scene coming back to this summer the big news in ibiza is your involvement with height which is the new Wednesday night party at Amnesia. What appealed to you about the project? Well, they were really, really open to the idea of um, letting me invite the guests that play with me. I invited Marcel Denman to play before me or, or whatever, or, or, or uh, Cozy or other people like that. And so once they, they gave me that type of con like power or decision-making power, it seemed really like a good decision to, to do. I, you know, technically... The terrace at Amnesia is still somewhat of the holy grail of, uh, of the island. I made famous by Ricardo and other people like that. I wanted a chance to, to play the terrace. And uh, I have before, but not closing it. And, um, and they said, you know, you can close it. You can invite whoever you want to play with you. It was a good, it was a good choice. I mean, You've built a real affinity with that room over the past couple of years. Or you've, you've started yeah, to build an yeah. affinity with the room. Mm -hmm, yeah. I guess so. I'm still learning it. I mean, it's very tech house room. It's very, you know, you don't just play something super weird and deep and the place goes off. But there is a way to like incorporate really good music in there and not just go straight for the dance floor, but still get people dancing. I remember, you know, one time I walked in, Ricardo was playing a Pepe Braddock record, which normally shouldn't have everybody go nuts and have everybody go nuts. And, uh, so I knew from that point on, I was like, you know what, you can, you can probably experiment a little bit, but you, you got to get back to dance beats. Um, so that's what I'm doing now. I'm just like hoping that more and more people want to hear something different and come to that room and not just the, the people who want to hear bangers all the time. I, I hope that, you know, others, others come to the room and are willing to groove, not need their hands up all the time, you know, but just want to groove and just like get down a little bit. So that's what I'm working on. Maybe in the next couple of years, you know, it'll, it'll happen. Are you still continuing your relationship with Circo Loco? Yeah, yeah, we're, we're friends. But, you know, it's just, it's, you know, you shouldn't play everywhere. You should, um, I, I would love to, uh, but I guess it makes sense that um, they were like, if you go play height a certain amount of times, then it doesn't make sense to also do Circo Loco or Paradise or whatever, which can be considered competitors so um i had to make an active decision to do more height 
we're still talking about doing at least one day, maybe the closing of uh, Circle Local, but um, it's not set yet. In Ibiza, it seems like you get to a certain standing as an artist, and then the kind of next logical step is to start running your own your own night. Mm -hmm. Is that something you've ever considered? Yeah, yeah, I, I considered it the last couple of years, and um, that's a whole different ball game. That's like you're now you're not an artist anymore. You're 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 an artist, yeah, I guess so, but you're a businessman at that point, and you have business contacts and business uh, associates to make happy. You gotta sell a certain amount of tickets, you gotta you know, have all the right DJs. Unfortunately, I do agree with what a lot of people criticize about Ibiza is that basically everybody just has the same DJs coming out all the time to sell tickets. And if I did a night, I would fall into that. I'd have to invite all the same people out in order to make my night work, even if I didn't want to have my, I mean, I, I do like them, but maybe I wanted to have, you know, some, uh, somebody else, you know, and, uh, you know, without name dropping, just like different people that are not gonna, that are not necessarily big on the island, but it's a business island. It is, it's, there's still a major business behind it and you have to sell tickets or you're not gonna last. And I don't want to be, I'd rather wait until the right moment and wait until the right place and everything comes up, you know. So you've had offers to... From everybody, to yeah. And there was a moment there where, you know, I was actually thinking about it. Um, I mean, I was, I've always thought about it and then just kind of said, nah, forget it. But this past year, for, for 2015, we were thinking about doing a night at DC 10 on Fridays. And I decided that just the politics of the island, just the business, the pressure to, to book certain acts over other acts or whatever became too overwhelming. Just it wasn't gonna make any sense to do it yet again so i backed out and um now there's life and death on fridays uh there's five of them and it was it was originally going to be with tale of us and um you know i backed out because it was just like not everything was was going to be perfect so they went ahead and they're doing five i think but we were going to do like you know a whole actual summer of of uh, dates like i guess like if things aren't perfect i'll just back out you know do you think it's something you will end up doing? <laughs> I mean, it'd be cool. You know, it would be really be cool. You know, if if I can emotionally handle it, <laughs> if I, you know, it's it's tough. You know, you have to be strong. You have to realize that you're gonna get a lot of criticism. You're gonna get a lot of pressure from business associates to make them money. You're gonna get the clubs are gonna want us to sell a certain amount of VIPs, whether you like it or not. Even DC Ten has VIPs these days, or tables. Everybody's selling tables. And I don't know if you know, but there's nothing more annoying than playing and having a table, person that paid like 10 grand for a table come up and demand a, a track, you know. That is probably one of the, I mean, I, I couldn't go through that every week. You know, there's some DJs that could do it, and there's some DJs that somehow find a way to make them happy without ever actually playing their tracks for them. But um, just that, that turning point would be really tough for me to handle. You know what I mean? Just speaking to you, it feels like the most important thing for you is just remaining independent. Like yeah. you don't like being tied down. No. Whether it be musically, different projects. You, mm -hmm. Do you think you have a fear of being pigeonholed, of being more oh, just already, one thing? I already was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> My tracks were so, in the Mace Plex tracks were so successful. I'm still considered like, oh yeah, he's, a, he's one of the top Deep House producers around. 
you know, I was already pigeonholed a long time ago. That that happens as soon as you have a hit record. The point is what you do from that point on when you're when you've been pigeonholed. If you show people that you're not just that, or if you decide to make money off of that, so it's a fear. But um, I'm always getting people to realize, oh, he's not just a deep house producer. He can do other things. <laughs>